All right, welcome back to Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's, and really welcome back. It's been how many months, Sam? Uh, it's like four or five. I don't know. It's it's been a while. So I am the titular Garrett's of this podcast. I'm Chris Garrett's history professor at Bethel University, joined by Sam Mulberry. Sam Mulberry, who's titularly nothing, <laughs> but uh, I, my name is not Rhymes. It's not with. It's not nothing. So, but uh, Sam and I have done a few podcasts over the years, and I think last spring uh, we were trying to come up with a new, that's right, uh, new kind of podcast to do, and it occurred to me that people often mispronounce. My name and make it sound like something like Garrett's, which does rhyme with carrots, but that's not actually how you pronounce it. It's German. It's one syllable. It's Garrett's. And at least in English, we weren't. Does anything rhyme with Garrett's? Have we found anything Nothing yet? Nothing rhymes with Garrett's. In all Garrett's. two episodes we've done, we have yet to find that's a word right. that rhymes with Garrett's. So here's how we play the game. Uh, normally, Sam and By the I, way, I love your kind of somewhat questionable origin myth for this, but go ahead. I'm going to let you go with it. <laughs> Let's not interrogate that much. So normally the way we play the game is Sam and I each bring, what, like three words. That's right. And I guess we're just not sure if they rhyme with Garrett's. So we ask the other one, hey, does this rhyme with Garrett's? And of course the answer is no, nothing rhymes with Garrett's. But you know why this is an interesting word and we proceed to discuss? That's right. So I think we have a word today, Chris? We do have a word today. That word is Truth. Does truth rhyme with Garrett's? No, but what it does rhyme with is Christopher Moore. Wow. That's also that not true. Sort of oh, that's right. Yeah, oh, wait, I'm here. Hey, that's right. are in my office. <laughs> we have a guest star this week, uh, a political science international relations professor and podcaster extraordinaire, Christopher Moore. Chris Moore. Uh, we are in actually in Chris's office. Like uh, We just kind of hijacked your space here. Thanks for <laughs> This is the EST studio. That's what, that's what I think of it Chris as. Chris is so. actually just sitting here working. We just kind of walked in and started doing a <laughs> podcast, and Sam decided, you know, let's ask Chris to talk about truth. Yeah. That's kind of true. Why are, why are we talking about truth, Chris? Where'd this, well, where'd I, this come I, from? Well, I basically wanted to ha- I wanted to make you two have this conversation um, on Nothing Rhymes with Gertz. Uh, and I thought the best way to do that was to sort of bring you in here and, and throw an article at you and then ask you to kind of reflect on a, on a big highfalutin argument. Um, you are a game theory expert. I feel like we were just played somehow. Yes, that's true. Uh, you, uh, roll for initiative, please. Gotcha. Okay. I got a seven. It's my Thaco. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Thaco? nice. Thanks. Yeah. Dug deep into my 18-year-old memory for that. There you go. That's yeah. good. Okay, anyway, go good. proceed. Thanks. Uh, there was an article that came out in the uh, most recent uh, uh, the September issue of The Atlantic uh, by Kurt Anderson. I love that you have a print copy of The Atlantic Monthly. I'm trying to keep, I'm trying to keep the print media alive, That's man. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, and when I was when I was an undergraduate, my uh, I, and I told my advisor that I thought I wanted to go to the State Department. He said, "There's three things you need to learn how to do more." And he says, I know, "I know you're a Mennonite." And he said, "You need to learn how to drink scotch. You need to learn how to play bridge. And you need to how to re- how to read a, read some uh, magazines." And I said, "Well, I can do one of those three things." <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I started. So I've been subscribing to the Atlantic ever since. Okay, I still haven't learned how to play bridge. Um, Okay, so there's a piece in the most recent Atlantic by by Kurt Anderson, who is as Chris, as you pointed out, is the editor of or was the, was the founder and editor of Spy, which I think is defunct now. Yeah, and this piece uh, is titled "The Atlantic: How America Lost Its Mind," but it's really a piece about truth, and it's an excerpt from a book that's forthcoming. So correct, or excerpts probably from. And what Anderson's really grappling with here is 
the disconnect that he perceives, I think accurately, uh, between um, a commitment to objective truth in our public discourse, an increasing, perhaps, commitment to objective truth in our public discourse over all kinds of things, political issues, science issues, health issues. Uh, he It's not particularly a screed against the left or the right. He finds uh, fault on both sides. But this is maybe a little bit more on the right if you read the last third of the article. Well, that's true. I mean, I, th- I think you're right, but you know, it resolves to a certain political party. And, right. So yeah, let me yeah. let's let me yeah, walk we'll, through we'll that a little bit. It yeah. starts on the left, ends in the right. Yes, right. So his his contention is basically that this is the fault of his generation. It's the fault of the 1960s. And uh, at least it's not the millennials for one. Goodness, let's go that. back and blame the 60s some yeah. more. No, boomers. You say his generation. Is he a boomer? I don't know who he He's is. He's a boomer. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to blame them for anything, too. Yes, so. please. Uh, we, got th- we got three Gen Xers sitting right here. <laughs> let's throw, we're bo- clean. Let's throw we're, bombs on both sides. Yeah, we're yeah. just hunched over in our peacoats being being angry and gruff at the world. So, okay, so here's the thing. So he basically says that in the 1960s, there was this introduction of what I what, – this is my term, not, not uh, his, but what I – to Sam offline called a sort of hedonistic relativism. Mm-hmm. It's not a thoughtful intellectual relativism, but it's basically a, uh, what your truth is your truth for you and you do you and I'll do me. Um, and we'll, um, uh, we'll just be tolerant of each other. And that, that, that ethos, he, he pins on the hippies, of the 1960s, mm-hmm. but what he argues is that that got transmogrified by the 1980s. And with the relative material success and refocusing of materialism in the 1980s, that this, uh, the 1980s inhabited sort of this, what do you call it, smog of subjectivity. So there was, uh, we saw the rise of, of sort of equal time or equal balance or teach the controversy and some of these kinds of tropes in the 1980s. And that that really set the stage for the modern the, uh, the modern presentation, which is which I think his term is very evocative, and is the um, is the uh, fantasy industrial complex <laughs> that there are large scale interests that have an interest in presenting anti truth narratives. Now I, I say anti truth, I don't mean lies, and I'm, I'm drawing here a little bit from Henry Frankfurt's. I'm going to swear here, so uh, earmuffs on your kids. Five, four, three. Uh, the book is called On Bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in that book, uh, Frankfurt, who's a philosopher, argues that there are three kinds of, of, of ontological categories. There's truth, there's lies, and lies actually care about the truth because you're deliberately obfuscating the truth. And then there's this third category, BS, which is um, statements irrespective of the truth. The truth is an, is, is an irrelevant function. This, and this harkens back to Stephen Colbert's truthiness, which, which Kurt Anderson also cites. So in this world, there's a, there are industries interested in creating narratives around things that may or may not be tangentially related to the truth. Yeah, like examples of this would be what, uh, what are fantasy industrial complexes that we have? Um, Russian narratives on social media about the presidential election mm-hmm. or about... Um, <coughs> excuse me, about um, NFL controversies. One of my favorites over the last 24 hours is someone took a screen grab of an Instagram account. Um, the Instagram account was publicly, it was sort of uh, criticizing NFL players. There was one picture of NFL players kneeling uh, during the a national anthem, and the second picture was 
uh, flags draped across uh, soldiers' coffins right next to each other. Um, but the photo, and, and, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was, I think the caption said uh, both, both happening in Maryland or something like that. But it was, the picture was posted from Vladivostok, Russia. <laughs> They had forgot to change their geotag. Um, so, Subtle. Yeah, 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 right? So, yeah. But, I mean, also, I mean, I mean, conspiracy theories of various sorts. Yes. Um, everything that Snopes is, is fighting against. Um, did Hillary Clinton actually participate in a child sex ring at, at around of a pizza shop uh, in suburban Maryland, right? Um, but a lot of anti-vax Kinds of yes, things. I mean, so it's, it's not warming. only politics, right? Right, you know, and so and, and Anderson's Anderson's thought is that this has settled into the right, the political right, in the United States more so than the left, mm-hmm. although it perhaps started in the left. But he points to some other kinds of, you know, um, the anti-vaxxer crowd runs across the political gamut, yep. Yep. and sort of the he talks about his mother buying a book about talking to your plants. Uh, back in the 1970s, and that he he sees a continual chain here. He argues that Americans, as a as a group, are a particularly credulous group of people. That we're believers, mm-hmm. and so to engage that conversation, I had to talk to some historians. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any merit to this? Are Americans uniquely believers? Okay, so here we, I, I wanted to start by challenging the very premise, please, because uh, you know, as not just a historian but an international historian, I see. Like before the first page is out, at least two kind of obvious challenges to this idea that Americans are exceptionally, you know, just you know, bigly, but like as an exception to the broader <laughs> theme, like Americans. Did you, say, did you say bigly or bigly? Bigly, big. I can't remember. Um, <laughs> but like in 2017, Americans are exceptionally credulous, and he has this kind of laundry list of minorities of the American population that seem to be uh, credulous about things, and right. it's. We should also talk about the kind of credulities he lumps together, right? Yes, but, please. And so like, none of them, very few of these are actually majorities of the population with the accept of religious belief, and we should come to that yep. and spend some time. But it's a wide range of like 20 to 30% kind of things. But he points out, if you put together, like every American seems to fit into at least one or two of these. Right. So the first I point is um, he just asserts as self-evident that Americans are un- unique in this respect, mm. right? Like mm. there, there's no kind of international... Um, comparison or contrast, um, you know, maybe Canadians or the Danes or someone are just much more empirical than, than the rest of humanity, but I, I would suspect a fair share of humanity would actually be credulous according to many of his measures, at the very least in terms of religious or supernatural metaphysical belief that does not fit his definition of factual truth, right? Like right. that, if you're looking not just at the United States, but the global South, that's that's incredibly common and in ways that we would find strange in some right. ways. Okay, so that's the first. The second would be the kind of historical comparison. Like, uh, I mean, this is not a directly anti-Trump. I mean, that's not the sole purpose of the. But no. Trump is kind of the apotheosis of this problem and the master manipulator of this problem. And, you know, we, we criticize as historians Trump for the Make America Great claim. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like this kind of misty, racialized nostalgia for white 1950s America. This is a Make America Great Again claim. I mean, lurking in this is some sense that on the other side of the 60s or something... It was a golden age of empiricism. Right. Where we all ask the questions that at the end he says parents should be getting their kids to think about. And we all did the hard reading of you know print magazines and newspapers and, and checked experts. Mm-hmm. And we all believed in science. And, like, I'm not an American historian, so Sam, you're the one with the master's in American history, so I'll turn it over to you here. But, like, 
I find that highly dubious on all sorts of accounts. Like you don't have to dig too deeply into American history, um, not just in the '60s with all the weird kind of stuff he talks about, but even stayed seemingly commonsensical time periods to find Americans are, I mean, by his definition, credulous. So on that basis alone, I, 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 I think he tells an interesting kind of cultural critique sort of version of history, and you can pull out all sorts of things that have happened since the '60s that sort of feed it. I would question the notion that this is somehow exceptional to this nation or to this time. Hmm. Well, and, and I will say I didn't read the article because I was told about <laughs> this. It was it was handed to me probably. You just three, showed up for a, nothing rhymes with Garrett. That's right. Probably three minutes before we started, Chris was like, "Hey, have you read this?" To which I said, "No." And I said, and "Good." Then, and then we hit record. So, um, but it, it seems. I mean, just from what I can glean from talking to you, it seems to me what I find more troubling than then the relativism of it is the cynical use of relativism to mm. like i mean we were talking before we started recording about um sort of the convenient cynicism uh you know where where you, kind of like so uh was this last week that we were talking about you buying a fish or two weeks ago two weeks ago this is not come up on a podcast i know yet. but I, but i don't know but i'm i'm going to tell the story i don't remember how long okay. See, i will say one thing that's happened in the last few years I actually care more about making sure I'm telling stories correctly. Like, so when you said your origin myth at the beginning, I'm like, well, it's interesting we're talking about truth because what, the story you told is like kind of where the kid came from, but it's truthy, right? So, but, but we do this all the time. So, but so a couple weeks ago we were it, having it a was, lunch conversation. It was, it was last week that that you. Okay. Uh, I had never seen you, Professor Mulberry, more impassioned than trying to convince me to buy a fish. That's right. To buy a fish bowl with a fish in it for your kids. And basically what I was doing was I was playing a game where yes. I took a position and then I just was like, I am going to sell you hard. I don't care whether you buy a fish, but I wanted to make every possible argument why that yeah. could be because it's really fun to do. Now, that's not cynical because I went, don't really care whether you buy a fish. Even though you went full Glengarry Glen Ross on me. Exactly. No, no. With all the swears, too? Like I, in Mammoth Clearly. I... One of the things I deeply wish is that we had been recording then. But <laughs> but it's one thing for us to have that conversation at lunch when, like, at the end of the conversation, I can say, I don't really care whether you buy a fish. That was just fun to do. Mm -hmm. It's another thing if I'm making policy arguments or news and truth claims and playing that same game of, like, I any any edge I could take to make an argument was, like, it's, it's you know, like, that, that was... That would be that. That is very cynical, and that's what I see a lot. Is you know, and and that that actually is something I see sort of on both sides of political discourse, where it's like if we can find an edge, and then we're going to build a, you know, we're going to build a huge front on that edge, where it's like, well, that's not really what we're talking about, and that that's the but but it's sort of saying, what if we take that and, and weaponize that um, relativism and use it for for really cynical purposes rather than. You know, if it's relativism as a worldview, that's different than than sort of saying I don't really believe this, but I'm going to use this to sort of uh, push for an argument and try to convince people that I think I can convince, convince with that. So uh, can we come back? Because I actually think that's a, that that is true. Like I don't disagree entirely with this article. But I, I do want to go back to my point, which is everything you described has happened before oh, many absolutely. times. Oh, yes, like, yes, yes. This is there's humanity. nothing new. The one new thing he does eventually meander his way to is the impact of technological change. Yes, right. I mean, like, and I I can't deny that. And so mm -hmm. maybe we have reached you know there's the, there's actually a difference of scale here. 
Yeah, um, so, but that's but, not blaming the 1960s. That's blaming the right, 80s and yeah, 90s. But, I mean, yeah. I think you can find throughout American history conspiracy theory, yeah. throughout American history religious supernatural belief, throughout American history weaponizing. History, right? Yeah, well, in human history, but like weaponizing, if not lies, BS, right? Like mm-hmm. that, you can find that in most, most time periods in American history. Or think about the way we've talked about race as white people, right? I mean, is that not a kind of BS? I mean, I mean, I don't know if that, or maybe it's a lie, but like, I, so in a sense, like, I want to say this is not actually new. And, and so it's harder to believe the, the causal narrative here of something happening in the sixties when, you know, we started dropping acid and reading Foucault and right. then you got to the eighties and just then the internet happened. Fact like, check. I was not dropping acid. You said we, I just wanted, I'm sorry. This, <laughs> we're at the level of like, the royal we of we all of us. We. That's right. So so maybe I can just like register my complaint here, and we don't have sure. to dig deeper into that. No, I think that, I think that's valid, and I really take your point that the big innovation that he arrives at is is technological change. Uh, concerns, well, a false narrative about vaccines began to emerge in the 1990s, and it was in the late 90s. I can't remember when that study came out that it was clung to for so many years. The fallacious, retract, subsequently retracted study that uh, vaccines were associated with autism. Mm-hmm. That. That occurred in the that occurred in the late 1990s. I recall that wasn't that was, or was that early 2000s. I don't know. I can't remember. Um, but either way, that really took off once the internet got was was able to foster a sense of community mm-hmm. amongst disparate people who had this sim- or, or were, were attracted to this similar opinion. And then there was some celebrity notoriety, um, who, which was lent to that cause. And then a, a community formed around this, and this has become a very pervasive minority belief system. Well, in the and if we look at an example like that, um, I mean, that's misinformation that, that, that people latch on to. Um, and I, I presume with anything like that, someone stands to gain by from that, but... But, who, but, but but that's the thing. Right. Who gains from that? I'm saying, and that's different than than some than, than some of these other things where where it seems like like we're making use of that. I mean that that's yeah that's huh. Yeah, I, I think I think that's true. I mean the kind of ease of access you have and then ease of dissemination, you know, it is is simply different. Um, I think though my second kind of fundamental objection is I guess anecdotal. Okay. Right. I, I have heard numbers like this before, and at the level of, like, very broad cultural critique, I'm probably persuaded by what he's saying. But in my lived experience, I don't encounter this. Hmm. Like, I mean, it's not to say that I don't know people who hold to, like, individual versions. Like, I, I'm sure I know people on Facebook who believe that their their child's autism was caused by a vaccine. Like, I, I, I know that. Um, and I know people who voted for Donald Trump. I mean, and uh, at the same time, like, they're not fundamentally irrational or subrational people. In fact, in most of their daily functioning, this is not what guides them. I mean, they actually do something much closer to what Anderson would have us all do, like, in most of their jobs. And for us, because we're college professors, Mm -hmm. how often do we see this, like, in our classrooms? Like, do you actually see, I mean, like, regularly see students, like, citing this kind of evidence and refusing to be to to give a hearing to counter argument or to counter evidence. I don't I don't see that. Like I'm always worried it's gonna happen because I see this floating around uh in in kind of the the gestalt, but like I don't actually see that in my functioning as someone whose job is actually truth seeking and who uses the kind of empiricism to a degree that Anderson is calling for. Yeah. 
And so I always have to live with that tension. Like I, I hear this is what's happening in society, and I don't actually see it right. in my relationships and my work. Is it a self-selection thing? Uh, are we simply attracting a crowd of people for whom who buy into uh, a thicker set of empirical um, norms? Yeah, or it could just be you know willful blindness on my part. Yeah. Or I mean, students are all just they've learned to play a game with me, right? I mean, I, I know there are ways to think about it. Sure. It's just like, it, but like at some level, like I have to live with that, and it, it's hard for me to reconcile those too easily. That simply doesn't fall into my own kind of conspiracy theory. Right? Like they're, they're all just lying to me. Right. Well, there's something right. there's something uh, developmental about students too, yeah. though. Like where they're they're. They've been taught that what you're teaching them is, I mean, that, that they, they've been taught that you are the expert in this, too, so that so that there's not going to be necessarily an outward challenge. Right, but at that. some point, so maybe it's not now, but at some point, shouldn't I expect in 10 to 20 years that that will no longer hold? That they've been so deeply socialized through, like, multiple generations of this that expertise will be meaningless to them? I'm, or do I have so much power because I give grades that affect their future that I'm not going to be able to, Right. No, you know, that's they'll it. always treat me as an expert, then? Um, I mean, here's the other thing, like, because he does talk about the academy to some extent. He does mm-hmm. talk about Foucault and constructed knowledge. Um, one thing that does strike me is that in my field, I didn't encounter that. In mm-hmm. that, was, that was not meaningful to my experience, and you might have had a different experience. But I think there is something different about history as a discipline. Okay. It might help. I mean, in, history is a kind of empirical field of study. Right, like I, I'm not allowed to advance any kind of belief I want, whether it's a lie or BS. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to provide evidence to support it, right? right? And I have to strive for objectivity. But history is not a science. And, and history deals with evidence that is scarce. And so fundamentally, history is an interpretive act. It's about making meaning. And we all know this. And the only thing we can do is try to advance more compelling arguments for our interpretation. But we might not have a way to either verify or falsify the arguments we're making. Like, for example, there's abundant evidence, you know, of the date and the hour when Japanese forces attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Right? Like that, I don't, you know, conspiracy theorists could say, well, there's a big conspiracy to create the evidence. But, like, like what it means, why it happened, the result of that, you know, there's a wide spectrum of interpretation. I don't know how... I can verify or falsify that necessarily. Hmm. I can just find one argument more compelling than the other. And so historians, I think, live in a different kind of space than maybe some other fields and maybe what I take to be kind of Anderson's bent, which is that there is kind of empirical, factual knowledge that we can strive for. I mean, historians don't believe just in facts. Facts are empty and meaningless until you you put them together and you interpret them and then you bring life to them, right? Right. But we do that knowing we're probably wrong. It's got to be corrected. And we're, or contingent at least. And it's at least contingent or conditional, right? Yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of show my cards, like, my view of truth is, I'm not sure it's exactly the same view of truth as Anderson. Or my experience of truth-seeking is maybe different than his. And so maybe I'm a little bit, even though I'm bothered by some of the larger issues, I'm not fundamentally as sure we can get to the place he wants us to get to or that's desirable to get there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think what he's uh, at best what you would argue is that he's calling us to more tightly focus in uh, that the, that the lens of society has become blurred by um, a wealth of notions and 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 that there's uh, because there there are these disparate kinds of belief systems that are allowed to coexist in uh, in tension with each other and 
that we need to pull back from that. That whether it's history or chemistry or political science or philosophy, we need to have some kind of undergirding commitment to, yes, there's going to be interpretation. And yes, there's going to be a grappling with the facts. But to the, the Daniel Patrick Moynihan famous quote, right, uh, there are facts. You're entitled to your opinions, but you're not entitled to your facts. And, then, and once we get to that point, then we have a common basis to work from. And I think he'd, I think he'd be satisfied with that. Um, I, I pulled this off my wall here. I wanted to come back. I have a, a piece of paper on my wall with a with a with a. So, to my point about the kind of trust of professors or teachers. Yeah, so I want to come back to this 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 point you mentioned, and and uh, the question of whether or not at some point, uh, you know, we we still uh, I, I like you experience a high level of deference from my students, uh, maybe even more so than I'd occasionally care for. Uh, I wouldn't mind if they disagreed with me a little bit more. Uh, and that may be shifting. Uh, there's a, a Pew poll that was conducted in August of this year uh, asking uh, Republicans and Democrats, self-identified Republicans and Democrats, how they felt warm or cold against for, for various uh, parts of our society. And, and parts of it, they, they hung together very closely. Um, the average rating for the military amongst Republicans was 92 100 is the highest you could possibly go. Mom is at 100. And mom's at 99. The military's at 92. Um, uh, for, for Democrats, the military's at 82, and that's, that's pretty close. Uh, for police on the Republican side, it's at 84. For police on the Democratic side, it's at 62. But that's gotten very politicized over the last few months, and that makes some sense. Now, of course, for, the, for uh, teachers are, are quite close. Teachers, Democrats, 86. Teachers, Republicans, 72. Um, but here's where it gets started. It's where where we can do some hand wringing. Professors amongst Democrats, seventy one, not too shabby. In fact, seventy is exactly where Democrats place other Democrats. Uh, professors on the Republican side, forty six. Yeah. Now, is there an age component to this? Right. I mean, is this broken down by, by demographic age-wise? Nope. It's just self-identified Republicans, self-identified Democrats. So I don't know if it's the same study, but I did see similar. I mean, so that was one of the findings is there's in the last two years been a plummeting of support among self-identified Republicans and independents leaning that way for higher education. Or yes. like if you ask them, is this valuable, a majority now say no. Yes, and, and, we, and the professors are a stand-in for the higher right. education system. Right. But if you dig a little bit deeper into that, it actually does vary based on age and actual college experience. Yes, right. So like if, you, if, you're, if you have a recent experience of college, the majority of even Republicans still... Find that valuable. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, but like, you're right. I mean, I think that is a troubling trend one way or another. And, you know, I think part of Anderson's story would say, and to some extent, we have ourselves to blame for that. I mean, he is critical of... Some ways the postmodernism have worked out, and ways the identity politics find their ways into our field of study, and you know, and you know, that's what Republicans apparently re respond to. Right. So I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have talked about like Mark Lilla's book, I mean, kind of the liberal critique of identity politics in the academy. No. But I mean, I think he is tapping up, I mean, like harsh as Anderson is in the last third of the article about the Republican Party. You know, I, I think he would see some fault across the the board here for that. Um, so that then, can I get then to my kind of third critical thing? And I know yes. we'd want to talk about this. So, I mean, as he turns then his attention more squarely on the Republican Party, he says that the problem with it is that it's become a Christian party. Yes. Okay. And, and so I think, I think I, like, I could sense him trying to be fair throughout, mm -hmm. but I also know enough about him to know that, that he is an atheist who doesn't have a lot of use for organized religion. Yep. And, and so, like, what do you do <clears throat> with... We'll just use Christians, but you can use lots of religious groups. Or, I mean, like, with belief in a personal God. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, at one point, he he seems uh, just astounded that so many people believe in, in his words, a guy. Not mm-hmm. just like an abstract force or goodness or something, but a guy. Right? Mm-hmm. Like that That seems, that requires credulity mm-hmm. and willful indifference to facts. I mean, I don't know, he doesn't go that far, but... I mean, and you could attach a lot of things. You know, sometimes he's talking about um, non-religious kinds of spirituality, right? Or he's yes. talking about witchcraft or the supernatural ghosts. You know, I mean, but UFOs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think he then really circles back very directly to Christianity, Christianity. and especially to white evangelical Christians, mm-hmm. and he said this fundamentally has become the problem, and this is like a predictor of conspiracy theory. Believe. I mean, all. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, much as he blames the 60s and the Internet, like, I, I think in the end, is he not saying this is actually the problem? I mean, if, like, you pinned him down on this, wouldn't he say that if America were less Christian, this problem would diminish or go away? I think that is the implication. I think I agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't I don't think I agree with him on that. Right, right. Um, you know, I, although I will say that we're an odd, we're an odd niche of the academy. Um, a lot of our colleagues who, who we train with the same, at the same grad programs with, um, who were, you know, we work on some of the same kinds of research with, um, see some tension in the fact that we are devout believers mm-hmm. um, in a God we can't see, mm-hmm. um, and but yet remain uh, deeply committed to objective truth mm-hmm. in our in our fields and our disciplines, and serve in an institution that appears to support both those things simultaneously. And kind of the classic response places like this will always offer is that someone like Anderson is a devout believer in an absence of a God that he cannot see exactly. either, right? I mean, yeah. like the, these are both beliefs of yes. a sort, right? And so maybe that's what's holding him back from unleashing a little bit more directly on religious belief as a kind of lie or BS, yeah. right? But I mean, like partly I think there are just so many problems. Like, for example, at one point, you know, having gone off on religious belief as a kind of credulity, he then celebrates the Puritan and secular successor values to the Puritans like common sense. And I want to say, have you ever read anything by a Puritan <laughs> in your life? Like, if you could talk to a Puritan, yeah, they might strike you as very you know, kind of rational New Englanders, except for their beliefs in the nature of God and actually witches, too, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, sure. like this, but like he does acknowledge, like this has always been, there's been a balance here. So I don't think he's saying that you cannot have something that goes beyond uh, natural empirical proof, right? Like he's he's saying the problem is when this gets out of whack, and how we judge yes. the out of whackness is, is the tricky part. And he just thinks that you know a certain kind of Christianity wedded to a certain kind of politics, you know, is is help push it out of whack, right? And you know, partly what I want to say to him is, yeah, but you know, I think the problem is actually not that the Republican Party has become Christian, but it's not Christian enough, mm. right? I mean, it's Christian, but like, I don't. I mean, I think there are all sorts of debates here about the nature of that religious support and the eighty-one percent of white evangelicals who voted who voted for Trump, right? Like, does that reflect um, deep religious devotion? Is it because of belief, or is it actually? Um, that's an identification. It doesn't actually reflect. It, it reflects the problem of discipleship or something or catechesis. Oh, we, these are great questions. Off, we need off, to get off. you to class, though, because I think you have to teach in like 10 minutes. About Christianity, I do. Yeah. So um, this is all really interesting stuff. I would be much more equipped if I had read, done the reading, so, like our <laughs> students. Um, if you're interested in this and you're on Bethel's campus on Monday night, uh, we're having our first honors colloquium, and the the topic is "Are there answers?" which which ties into this. We're going to have uh, Gary Long from the Biblical Theological Studies Department, um, Nathan Gossett from the Math and Computer Science Department, and Stephen Lancaster from the uh, uh, psychology, psychology Department. So I, I think I was just actually just spent the last hour writing questions for that panel, and it's I'm so 
I'm so excited to go into that panel um, to sort of think about some of these things. So thank you very much for uh, for joining us on your own show, Chris. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Now we've switched to it's a live from AC Second Pod by the end. So <laughs> thank you for uh, doing this, guys. Thank you for talking through this with me. Uh, thanks for letting me just rant for like 40 minutes. Too. That, was that was good, fun. too. I, I needed this outlet. Okay, we'll be back another time. <laughs> well, I guess this is now live from AC Second. Who knows? Have, it's been hijacked. Go Royals. Go Royals. I changed my name.